Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. Particularly those of you who were here yesterday for the work day. It's really good to see you back today. It was such a joy, as I've shared with others, of just observing how wonderful the campus looks here, uh, our church, and all the work that was put in. We're certainly grateful to our God who has provided us uh, the means that we have that we can worship Him. And uh, we certainly want to take advantage of that opportunity as He gives it to us. If you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We're going to continue our series through this book. And while we won't spend a lot of time in the actual book of Hebrews this morning, we will kind of continue on with our study that, uh, Lord willing, uh, the next message in the series, we'll spend more time here in Hebrews chapter 3 as well as a little bit in chapter 4. But today we're going to um, have an opportunity. For those of you who were with, uh, with us for our church seminar, uh, last weekend, whether that was either through uh, actual being here uh, here at church or whether you were watching uh, by means of the internet, uh, you'll see some of the Bible study uh, process uh, that we talked about in this passage of Scripture. We'll be looking at different uh, literary styles and techniques, and we'll be uh, looking at different ways of, uh, look, of understanding how the Scriptures uh, stand on their own. Uh, as far as their trustworthiness. But as we continue through Hebrews today, I'd like for just a reminder, several weeks ago now, uh, when we started this series, I shared with you what I thought was sort of an underlying theme through the whole book, uh, and that is to understand that our unwavering faith in the completed and satisfying work of Jesus will see us endure all things until we receive our eternal reward in Christ. Hebrews is much about faith. Hebrews is much about Jesus Christ. Hebrews is much about perseverance. Hebrews is much about eternal reward. And so as we consider what um, has been preached through the series already with the assistance of Pastor Tim and uh, with Richard as well, as we consider how much greater Jesus Christ is than what the original Hebrew reader would have considered great. And even today, what we pursuing life in general would consider great. Jesus Christ is greater. And our faith must be in what, not only who he is, but what he has done. That faith being unwavering, in other words, a a faith that continues on understanding just how great Jesus Christ is. And As we look in Hebrews chapter 3, we see another way in which Jesus is greater. Uh, We've seen how he's greater than the angels, uh, not only in the fact that he has uh, provided, uh, he's a greater spokesperson or a greater messenger than even uh, the prophets or the angels, uh, but Christ now is going to be presented as one greater than the greatest deliverer that Israel had known at that, in that time, that being Moses. And just as the original Hebrew reader would be familiar with the important ministry of angels as God's servants, their understanding of Moses as God's distinguished servant would also be assumed. So to lift the reader's faith in a greater servant than Moses would be significant. That's what the author has in mind here in chapter 3. So let's read t- together, beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, 
the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I come to you now asking, not for assistance, not for uh, necessarily help, I ask that you would speak clearly. I pray that we would see Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand through open eyes and open ears. Give us faith to the point of obedience. I pray for your spirit to empower the word. Strengthen us through it. Make us more like Christ as we study together. I pray, Lord, that you would convict. I pray that you would reprove. I pray that you would correct. I pray that you would instruct. I pray that you would accomplish the very thing that you intended to do through your word as it's preached today. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The title of the message today is Don't Have a Hard Heart. When I was growing up, that term hard heart wasn't used very often. The, the, the term that was used in my household was hard head. Uh, you're being hard headed. Uh, you're just a hard head, uh, making it very personal. Uh, and the reason that term was used is because we were stubborn, to some degree by nature. Uh, if you ask my wife, she'll say that's deeply rooted in who I am, to be stubborn. But that's all right, at least I'm right. No, I'm just, uh, <laughs> no, to be stubborn, to be hard-headed is very similar, if not likened to being hard-hearted. And the further we go into our insistence of being right, or our insistence on being whatever we want to be, our heart does become hardened, our, our head becomes hard. Not because of the, of the bone there, but because of just the, the unwillingness to change, the unwillingness to submit, the unwillingness to give in. And the writer of Hebrews gives us a very strict, specific instruction. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, the message today is intended to provide a context to the passage that we begin reading, but more importantly, chapter 3 and 4 is the next message is intended to do. 
Now the author of Hebrews here quotes from Psalm 95. So, and that affirms not only the Holy Spirit's inspiration of Scripture in the Old Testament, it also affirms the interpretation of this text that we have found in Hebrews chapter 3. However, to gain a proper understanding of Psalm 95, we must flash back all the way back to Exodus chapter 17, where we find Moses leading the Israelites away from the land of slavery towards the land of promise. So in Exodus chapter 17, which we'll have on the screen, or you can turn in your Bibles and follow along, we find in verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff which you, which you stuck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now the Israelites in chapter 16 of Exodus have just experienced God's provision of food when they had complained about not having anything to eat. Not to mention, they had just walked across, across the dry seabed of the Red Sea after complaining that Moses had led them into a trap between the mountains, Pharaoh's army behind them, and the Red Sea before them. So we shouldn't be surprised then to discover yet more complaining, this time about water. Now let's not make any mistake, it's not so much that they didn't have water was the problem, it's the fact that they were complaining that they were not going to have any water that was the problem. As a matter of fact, their attitudes and their actions led to the location of their malcontent being designated by their very attitude. Can you imagine what your living room would look like if we were to rename it based on your quarrelsome nature and your worrisome nature before the Lord? Would you imagine what your garage would look like or, or how we would have to designate that or the place where you work or maybe the roads with which you drive? If we renamed them because of us quarreling with the Lord, because we were upset with the circumstances that we were in, well, that's exactly what happened many times with the children of Israel. Wherever they were at and whatever their attitudes and their actions were, uh, let's slap a new name on this place. And here we have two words uh, that reflect directly through their meaning of quarreling and testing. Quarreling and testing. However, in all of this situation, God's providence provided a type 
to foreshadow what would be a significant aspect in the week we call Passion. The instruction that God gave Moses to strike the rock would have significance that went way far beyond giving them something to drink. As the Apostle confirms in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that rock, that spiritual rock, for whom the people drank, was Christ. Yes, the Christ that was esteemed stricken by men, smitten by God and afflicted. He was the servant that Isaiah spoke of, who was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The one who took upon himself the chastisement that brought us peace and by whose stripes we are healed. Yes, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, has provided peace with God for you and for me. Maybe you may be asking, now why do I need peace? And why does it need to be at such a great cost? Simply put, it's because you and I are the enemies of God. You're born in sin. You're born apart from God. And the peace that you need with him cannot be earned through your merit. It cannot be earned through your good works, your education, your heritage, or even your bank account. The only means by which you can obtain peace with God is through the rock that was struck for you and for me. By abandoning all efforts to satisfy God on your own, dying to yourself and taking up a cross, you can have peace with God as you follow him. This is an act of repentance that is turning away from yourself. It's an exercise of faith that what Christ has accomplished is sufficient to make you right with God to the point of obeying him as your Lord and Savior and Master. It is here in our miserable state, just like the undeserving Israelites complaining and testing God, that God offers this spiritual water. You see, Jesus Christ is the stricken rock. He alone provides the water that becomes the spring of water welling up to eternal life inside of us. Jesus is the rock of our salvation, which leads us to Psalm 95. As Pastor Charlie mentioned earlier, what a wonderful passage to enter into worship with. So if you will, either in your worship guide where we have it printed, or in your scriptures, or if you would just like to follow along, on the screen, Psalm 95, beginning in verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is great and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Psalm 95 is known as a coronation psalm. It was used on special occasions in the temple. As the temple was being rebuilt, this psalm was selected to be a part of a group that would be sung as the worshipers would make their way into the temple. 
These psalms would often include historical narratives to substantiate their worship. And here in verse 1 and following, we have an invitation to sing. Now we often think of singing as a voluntary act, hopefully flowing from our pleasant experiences. But not always so. Now when you read the worship guide this morning, hopefully there wasn't a fill of obligation. Hopefully you didn't feel coerced to sing. But to sing, making, or to the point, even if you weren't familiar with the songs, you still wanted to listen or maybe join in as best you could. However, Psalm 95 isn't just an invitation to sing, but to sing, making a joyful noise. The psalmist uses this phrase twice. And when we think about a joyful noise, perhaps we think of, of a pleasant person who has had a trained voice and has great experience in singing wonderful melodies. But let's understand that this term, making a joyful noise, is more of a military term of making a shout as if you were going to war. Now I realize that you may be sitting or standing next to someone singing as if they were wounded in war. And I'm going to assume by your laughter you know exactly what I'm talking about. But no, it's to make a joyful noise. It's a shout. If you're motivated to go and, and fight for your nation or go fight for a cause, there's something brewing on the inside that you just you scream and you think of you know, the, the theatrical presentations, whether it be in a movie or some sort. And you think of, of the display of, of just passion, of somebody just, and I'm not going to do it for you, don't worry. But the exaltation that comes from just letting it out. And as one who often leads our congregation in music, there are times when that is more prevalent than others. Perhaps it's because you're a little bit more familiar with the song. Or perhaps it's like Pastor Chad was saying earlier, maybe it's because you can relate more about what you're singing. It doesn't have to be loud. But we are invited to sing and make a joyful noise. An ear-splitting noise. A battle cry. And so the psalmist gives us an invitation, but he also poses indirectly three different questions that he answers for us. First of all, to whom should we sing? That's easy. Verse 1 tells us, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. That rock that in Exodus chapter 17 was struck for us. That rock that provides the living water of life. That rock upon which we stand. That rock that we, our feet will not slip. That rock of salvation. I don't think it's merely coincidence that this psalm draws from the very text that alludes to in referring to the Lord as the rock of our salvation. The one who saves us deserves our joyful shouts of praise. Which should remind us that we are never the audience. There's an audience of one that we all sing to because there is only one who deserves it. There is only one who has saved us. May the attention never go to anyone or any group or any of us when it comes to singing to the Lord. 
because it is unto him that we sing. The Lord has provided the living water from the rock that he has struck. We come into his presence. We don't invite him to come to ours. We go to him. The Israelites wondered if God was present back in Exodus chapter 17. Perhaps they should have been seeking him instead. And they would have realized what we all should understand as well, that God never moves. In our stubbornness, and our waywardness, we are always the one who moves. For us to be in our own self-pity, for us to be in our deluded self, self-absorbed life, May we never say, where is God? For we know he's never moved. It is about us moving towards him. As James reminds us in James chapter 4 verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So when we sing, we sing to the Lord. And we sing into a direction that is one way. We don't prepare ourselves and get everything tightened up and say, okay now Lord, now you come and and, and watch us worship you. No, it is our worship and will we all direct our attention to him and ultimately to his son Jesus Christ through the preaching of the word and through the singing of the word and the praying girded by the word and through the fellowship in the word and the giving according to the word. The rock of our salvation deserves our attention and our adoration. But if we do not deserve him or pursue him, we have to wonder, what is it that has hardened our heart? Not only do we have an answer to whom should we sing, but we have an answer to how are we to sing. The psalmist tells us that we should sing with thanksgiving and praise. That this is the opposite of complaining and grumbling, as we found in Exodus chapter 17. The cure for those wandering through the wilderness with Moses would have been, obviously, to be thankful for what God has done and praise him. But they chose instead to test the Lord. They quickly forgot the slavery that they were rescued from. They quickly forgot the food that was given to them just earlier on. And how quickly do we forget? Perhaps we feel what God has done in saving us is not relevant to our current inconvenience. Yes, that was all well and good that God saved me when I repented and I placed my faith and trust in Him. But you just don't understand how difficult it is right now. You just don't know how frustrating this is right now. You just don't know. And so don't confuse me with the facts back here with what Christ has done in changing my life and changing my direction and changing my destiny. You just need to understand what's going on right now. Like the children of Israel did. Perhaps we feel that what God has done isn't relevant. However, Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, to rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not harden your heart. Rejoice always. Give thanks in all circumstances, 
for this is God's will. This is going to require us to have faith that what he has done is truly for our good and we value it to the point of glorifying him for it. The truth of what God has done for us should produce an emotional response, not the other way around. We don't come to church, we don't come to worship time to whip ourselves into an emotional frizzle so that by the time we get around to Tuesday morning we forgot anything about church. However, we can't go to the other extreme and expect there to be no emotional response for what God has done. To have wonder for what God has done. To be extremely amazed at what God is doing. And if we have no emotion, we have to wonder what has hardened our heart. Then a third question to the answer is not only... Does he tell us to whom we should sing or how are we to sing? And this is going to seem like an obvious one here, but, but why should we sing? Why should we sing to the Lord? Well, number one, because the Lord is a great God and a great King. He is the sovereign over creation. The omnipotence of God is a marvelous thought. It isn't for us to muse about well, is there anything too big for God to do? Is there anything too evil or too wicked? Can, any, can anything overcome God? No, what we are to do is to be in awe of the eternal, inexhaustible power that will accomplish whatever God wills. To know that the world is indeed in his hands, not like the little song that we used to sing, even though it is true, uh, should cause us to marvel at just how vast he is. It should cause us to marvel at his authority as the creator of all things, including us. To remember that the earth and the sea were made by him, and even to a point that sea became dry land for those in Exodus chapter 17, right? And it should cause us at times to be speechless, to have no words to describe the all that is in your heart and your mind. We should sing because God is great. He's the sovereign over creation. But fear, in the midst of our want, will overwhelm our confidence in God's power. That is, if we lose sight of what he has done, knowing that he has made the whole world and he sustains it. If we forget that, our fear in our present circumstances are going to overwhelm any understanding we have about how powerful he is. The Israelites in Exodus chapter 17 needed water. But in their need, they forgot the one who made them food when they were without. They forgot the one who divided the water when they needed a passageway through. They forgot the one who delivered them out of slavery. They forgot the one who way back when they were crying out in slavery, the one who heard their cry. He was sovereign. Their circumstances hadn't passed out from under his awareness. Their dire need was not something that he didn't understand. But their fear overwhelmed their understanding of just how great he is and how sovereign he is over all things. 
But he demonstrates not just that he's a great God and a great king because he's sovereign over creation, but because he's a shepherd over his people. As his people. We can trust the good shepherd cares so much for his sheep. Sheep that have been purchased by the precious blood of his son. Sheep that he would never leave unprotected, without nourishment, misplaced, or without direction. He would never leave them alone. Remember, the Israelites tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? He was there when, he cried out, when they cried out from slavery. And as believers in Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Amen. No one took it for him. He laid it down on his own. He was struck for us in obedience to the Father. And that's what we celebrate this week and every week on Sunday and every day of our life as believers. Is we remember that Jesus Christ was not just a pawn in the evil scheme by the Romans or the Jewish leaders, but he was just simply obeying the very will of God and being smitten and struck for us so that we might be saved. He wasn't a victim of his circumstances. He wasn't misguided by some foolish person telling him that this is what he should be like. He wasn't because people outwitted him or outsmarted him. He just simply humbled himself to the will of God the Father so that we who were lost complaining because we don't have what we think we should have it when we need it, where we want it. He chose to surrender his life and be nailed on a cross taking upon himself the wrath of God for us. His care for the sheep is enough to cause us all to fall down prostrate before the Lord, to kneel before our Maker in humility. Humility that would cause us to surrender to His ways, to His purposes, to His work. Trust that will eliminate complaining and discontentment with even the simplest issues of life. Faith that would produce obedience in the face of fierce suffering and persecution, and worship that even praises Him in the wilderness. It's clear from this psalm who we should sing to, how we should sing to him, and why. But the psalmist doesn't end it here. And here's where the author of Hebrews draws from. Interestingly enough, if you compare Hebrews chapter 3 and Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11 are parallel whether that's the work of the translators trying to be consistent or whether it's just helpful for us today, whether you're lost in Psalm 95 or if you're still back in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, just follow me from 7 on through verse 11. For the writer says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day of Messiah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, Though they had seen my work, and for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. 
Don't be hard-headed today. Jesus said that his sheep hear and obey his voice. The psalmist simply says, do not harden your hearts. The author of Hebrews adds, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. We've drawn on quite a bit from Exodus chapter 17, from Psalm 95, and it leads us to the point of the message today. Don't harden your heart. We'll look further into this warning, into the rest that's found in the rest of this passage in our next message. However, ask yourself, are you singing today? How did you sing today? If you're here for the work day yesterday, I can understand it might not have been as joyous and boisterous as it normally would be. But how did you sing? To whom were you singing? Why? Was it because it was in the worship guide? Was it because you didn't want to embarrass yourself around the others that were singing? Was it because you liked the tune? If you weren't singing, what's hardened your heart? Do you feel abandoned in your self-absorbed life? Have you forgotten what God has done for you? If you have, this is an excellent opportunity this week. If Jesus doesn't come back before next Sunday, and if he is gracious and merciful enough to allow you to live through the rest of this week, you will have built into your week so many opportunities to remember just what Christ has done for you. You'll be reminded of how the climax of his ministry came to die but to be resurrected from the life, from the grave to newness of life. Amen. You have an opportunity this week to remember the Lord's Supper. You have an opportunity this week to remember the passion, uh, the, the, the grief that Jesus Christ experienced in the garden. The passion that He demonstrated in understanding the world that He was about to die for hated Him. But don't wait until Thursday. Don't wait till next Sunday. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do you have the unwavering faith in the completed and satisfying work of Jesus Christ that has you singing? as you endure all things until we receive our eternal reward in Christ. Let's pray.